Amen. All right. Now, that wasn't even scripted, but I don't, I'm thinking this might be a sign from God. But uh, speaking of foul meat, I know you guys, uh, if you've been coming here for a while, you've known that as a loving shepherd, I've stuck out my neck for years uh, dealing with persecution, vilification, all kinds of stuff, loving you enough to warn you about the dangers of certain meat products, like foul meat. Notice I didn't come up with that term. It's naturally called that for a reason, folks, foul meat. Okay, and uh, even though I've been attacked and ridiculed on my position of love, promoting healthy meat products, namely the cow and pig, um, I, I actually, this week, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was willing, I'm not trying to boast, I was willing to stand to the very end on my own, if I have to, to share that wonderful truth with you. But this week, I've been vindicated. I am not alone on my journey to encourage you to stay away from certain meat products. Watch what this biblical scholar said. Pastor John, I have an important question for you from the outset here. If you had to choose between In-N-Out Burger or Chick-fil-A, what would it be? I, I can do a double-double with grilled onions. Okay. Uh, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a big boy meal. Chick-fil-A is kind of a, a little less manliness in Chick-fil-A, <laughs> okay. I guess. The diet of a righteous man. <laughs> a diet of a righteous man. Yeah, it's called vindication, people. But that's right. All right. Uh, but, but, but anyway, but it's, let's just close in prayer. That's your study for today. I'm, just, I'm fulfilled. I'm satisfied. No, not okay. Uh, but hey, as cool as that vindication was, okay, uh, did you know I've actually discovered a, a day of vindication uh, that's even better than that? And it's this day, right? It's, you know, as you and I as Christians, what are we doing? What are we supposed to be doing in light of the rapture? What are we doing? We're trying to lovingly warn people, as many as we can, out of thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us, to, to get saved so that you can join us at the rapture. So, but what do they do typically? They mock at us. They scoff at us. And guess what? There's going to come a day of vindication, and that is the rapture itself. Just like that, bang, in an instant, they'll know, oh, no. They were right. I was wrong. Why did I scoff? Unfortunately, at that point, they're going to be left behind, thrust into the seven-year tribulation. And that's not a joke, folks. That's why we keep telling the truth uh, so they can take the way out before it's too late. And that's why we're going to continue our study, Are You Ready for the Rapture? Right? And again, this is where a study I call where the rubber meets the road, man. You can get all kinds of things in, wrong in life, right? You could choose Chick-fil-A over uh, in and out as you just saw, the diet of a righteous. Okay, you can get that wrong, but whatever you do, don't get eternity wrong, okay? Uh, and so far, we've seen uh, uh, six different things about the rapture uh, to help people get ready for it. As you can see, we saw the basis of the rapture, the importance of the rapture, the purpose of the rapture, the reward for the rapture, the timing of the rapture, and then the last three times, we saw even the objections to the pre-trib rapture. And there we saw that even though we're not guilty of escapism and we're making this up because we can't just deal with the fact we're going to suffer under God's wrath in the seven-year tribulation and you've come up with this crazy belief that you're... No, we base it on the Bible, right? The pre-trib. But there's still people out there who reject that biblical truth and they throw up not just objections, folks. We saw baseless, ridiculous, unbiblical objections, things such as this. They say, oh, no, uh, I don't believe in the rapture because the word rapture is not found in the Bible. They say the rapture is not a secret event. Uh, the pre-trib rapture is not mentioned in a single verse. That's a lie. Uh, the pre-trib rapture produces laziness. The pre-trib rapture, they say, is a recent teaching and must be rejected. And then last time, if you're here, they actually say that John Darby got it in 1830 from this demonic Scottish girl. That's one of the most popular ones out there from some vision that she had, blah, blah, blah. And we saw if you do the research, which we did, you're supposed to use Christians, right? And, uh, and test things. And we saw that the, her so-called vision, you can get it on public record. It wasn't, I know it makes me cry every time too when I look at this. And, and I'm sitting there like, what, what's going on? It's, it's not even pre-trib. The vision is post-trib with the partial rapture. 
So how could you say that's the birthplace of the pre-trib when it's not even there? And then John Darby, he did know about her, but he denounced her as what she was doing was demonic and wanted nothing to do with her. So how could you say she influenced him? He denounced her. And then finally they say, oh, it's 1830. That's when it's... No, it didn't. He rediscovered, he didn't invent. He rediscovered by reading the Bible, which I highly recommend, okay? He read the Bible three years prior, 1827. He began to understand what the scripture talks about, the pre-trib rapture. So the whole thing is a, a baseless joke. But then they saw, as you saw, they said, well, he still invented it because we don't find any evidence of the pre-trib rapture taught in any Christian literature prior to 1830. Lie number two, right? We, saw, we did the homework. There's tons of evidence. We started from the early church right after uh, Revelation was written, 95, 96 AD, shortly after that, and moved all the way forward. There's tons of evidence prior to 1830, the church taught pre-trib, pre-mill, all over the place. So guess what? As we surmise, I'm going to try to be kind. You only got two options with these people that keep reporting this lie, that the rapture is not in before 18. No, you're either the worst researcher on the, the history of mankind, and you, you're not good at it. Get a different job, please. Or you're guilty of what we called a pre-trib rapture Nazi, right? Because you're doing the same technique that Hitler did with the Nazis. It was called the big lie. Remember that if you were here? The big lie. And the way that you do people is you tell something so crazy, obtuse, so big, and then you repeat it loud enough, long enough, and often enough. Human nature, guess what? You believe That's the only reason why this stuff is still on the internet is because you're guilty of the same tactics, the big lie. Last time I checked, that's not what we Christians are supposed to be doing. You want to believe in something? You better prove it according to the Bible, okay? And that leads us to the seventh thing we're going to take a look at the rapture, and that is the problematic positions on the rapture. Now, if you were here last time, this is where we left off, the old cliffhanger, okay? And I don't know about you guys, but don't you think it's kind of fair? All these weeks, what have we been dealing with? Not only looking at the biblical case for the rapture and then the pre-trib position that we leave prior to the seven-year tribulation based out of the scripture, Okay, and, but we've been vilified. And then we answered all the objections for week after week after week of these people coming against us saying it's wrong, it's unbiblical, and blah, blah, blah. And we answered it all biblically, which is how you're supposed to do it. But I don't know about you, but we've been put under the microscope. Don't you think it's only fair we flip it around and take a look at their positions and see how they stack up to the scripture? Well, guess what? Thanks for your vote of confidence. We're going to do it anyway, right? And we're going to start in reverse chronological order. We're going to start with the post-trib position. And that's a great picture. I like that because that's the blessed hope according to the post-trib. Therefore, encourage one of these words. You're going into the seven-year tribulation and the wrath of God for seven years. That's literally how you're supposed to encourage one another. And that's just one of the many reasons why that is completely unbiblical, as we'll see in a second. But what we're going to do is we're going to start at the uh, post-trib that says they go all the way through. Then we'll go to pre-wrath, about three-quarters through, then mid-trib, and then partial, and take a look and examine what they believe according to the Bible. Now, for those of you again who are not familiar with the post-trib position on the rapture, let me explain to you briefly what they would have you and I believe. Uh, Post-tribbers believe that Christians will remain on earth, listen, not just for some, not just for part, not just for half, but the entire seven-year tribulation. We're here the whole time. They believe the church will be taken up or raptured to meet Christ in the air at his second coming, okay? Uh, So basically, here he comes back, Revelation 19, Okay, and then they say you get raptured, and then that's at the very end. You get raptured, and then you come right back down with them. Whoa. What a ride. It's right, bro. Isn't that, doesn't that encourage you? But that's literally what they believe. That's their position. They believe that they will quickly return with Christ. So you literally, it's just the quickest elevator ride in the, the universe. <laughs> right? And you descend back to earth with Jesus to usher in the millennial kingdom. They believe that the rapture and the second coming 
are the exact same event, which we'll get to eventually. That's not true as well. One of the many problems, okay? Uh, but let's, let's help visualize the complete polar opposite difference on this position. Here's what we believe based on the scripture, and we made that case for it many weeks, the pre-trib rapture. Right now we're in the church age there all the way to the left. And the next event that there's no prophecy sign that has to take place, we're not waiting for something to happen in order for that to happen. It's not dependent on anything. It's not dependent, it's imminent. It can happen at any moment. The rapture is the next thing. And then shortly after the rapture, Daniel 9, 27, the Antichrist makes a covenant with the people of Israel. That's what starts the seven-year tribulation. Is anybody in the world trying to make a peace treaty with Israel at this point? Uh, just, uh, yeah, well, one guy's gonna do it after we're gone. He's the Antichrist. That's what starts the seven-year tribulation. And then we're up in heaven during that whole time prior to that event, right? And then we come back with Jesus, Revelation 19, the second coming, and then the millennial kingdom. That's what we believe. That's what we believe the Bible clearly teaches. Here's the post-trib thing. You're in the church age, and the church age continues on even in through the seven-year tribulation all the way to the end. And here's your encouraging words. You made it through seven years of God's wrath, utter fury on the planet if you survive. <laughs> but only if you get this bug out shelter and all this lime and the bag stuff. And you gotta, and somehow, if you can make it, then here's your reward. <laughs> That's it. As you can see, that's not just different from what we believe. That's at the polar opposite end, right? And so, so again, uh, obviously you take a look and it's not just different. Um, logically, both can't be true, which for those of you hooked on granola bars, thinking straight this morning, uh, that means one of them's wrong, right? Can we agree? So again, how do we discern truth from the scripture? Let's see which one stacks up and agrees with the Bible. And what you're going to find out very clearly is it ain't post-trib. Okay, but let's take a look at that. And the first reason why uh, I reject it, it's unbiblical, is because it places the church under God's wrath. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? That's exactly what Paul was saying. Encourage one another with these words. That's you. (laughs) And it's going to happen again every day, every month, if there's one year, five years, seven years. And somehow, if you can escape that, here's your elevator ride. (laughs) That's what they say. We are under God's wrath, the worst time in the history of mankind, and therefore I reject it out of the gates. That's what they say. You are going to be in that kind of environment, Christian, for seven years nonstop. Here's the problem. That's not what the Bible says. And you create a contradiction in the scripture. And one sure sign that you're following a false teacher or a a false doctrine is when something contradicts this. God doesn't contradict himself. That's a sure sign that you got it wrong and you need to start over. Or quit trying to be a teacher. You ain't good at it, right? Okay, uh, God doesn't speak with forked tongue, right? And, and he doesn't contradict himself. But these guys create these contradictions. They put us under the wrath of God, not just for a nanosecond, not just for ha- seven years nonstop. What? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, I'm not gonna uh, be in one nanosecond of God's wrath. And he says it multiple times. So your position can't be true, right? Now, again, don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter five. Right? We've seen these before, but Romans chapter 5, right? what is the payoff, if you will, of being saved? Why do I need to get saved? What am I saved from? What's the benefit of being saved? Right? This is just one passage, and notice what we're saved from. Right? Okay, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 11. Let's go ahead and stand as we read God's holy word. But here's what Paul says in verse 8. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we worked our way to heaven... I'm sorry, wrong translation. While we try to be a good person, while we did religious Christian deeds, right? While we laughed at Andy and Pastor Billy's jokes. That's close, but no, I'm just kidding. No, while we were what? Sinners, right? 
We weren't worthy. There's nothing you could do to earn your way to heaven. While we were still sinners, what did God do? Christ died for us. That's why we give thanks, man. There was no hope. We're all doomed straight to hell, myself included, but he died for us anyway to forgive us of anything and everything. Now, here's the payoff. You come to him and receive him as your savior. Here's what you get. Since now we've been what? Justified. Just as if you'd never sinned by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from what? How do you get around this? Saved from what? God's wrath through him, through Jesus. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also what? Woohoo! we just sang about it. Give thanks, we rejoice, right? In God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God's not mad at us anymore. He's brought us, we're not his enemy anymore, even though we used to live like that, act like that. He's brought us into that, okay? But that's just one passage that says that we aren't under God's wrath, okay? And then we saw it's not by chance. He says it again, before and after 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture passage, to drill it in our heads. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for his son from heaven, which is what we're currently doing right now, okay, uh, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who what? Rescues us from not just wrath, but what? The coming wrath, with the article there, speaking of the seven-year tribulation. We're rescued from that through Jesus Christ, because wrath, whether it's for all eternity in hell or wrath, his, pouring out his wrath for seven years on stop, we ain't under that. That's one of the benefits of being a Christian, Right? And then after the rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, he says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. But what? If you're born again Christian to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, what? Encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. But that's not what the post-tribbers are doing, right? In fact, they're doing the exact opposite of what God says we need to do and to believe right? The church, listen, we might, as we saw before, the scripture teaches, yeah, we're going to go through general trials, general tribulation. You're going to have heartache. This ain't heaven. Heaven comes later, right? But we are never, as you saw, three different passages, not once, not twice, three different times. And before and after the rapture teaching that we are not appointed unto God's what? Orge, his wrath. We are saved from, not appointed unto, we are rescued from God's wrath. So guess what? How in the world could you say that I'm going into the seven-year tribulation, not even just for a nanosecond, but for seven years nonstop? I don't just uh, disagree because I just can't handle the truth. Uh, You're not like the rest of us. We're so spiritual. We're going to prove our spirituality by being willing to suffer the seven years. That's called spiritual pride. No, I disagree because that's not what the scripture teaches. I am not appointed unto God's wrath. Not one nanosecond, not half, three and a half years, not three quarters, seven. It doesn't matter. I'm not going there. Now, unless you think that all of God's uh, wrath is not poured out in the seven-year tribulations we saw before. No, once it starts, it's nonstop wrath all the way to the very end. So therefore, I can't be in it from the beginning to the end. None of it. Let's just take a look at just a few of those passages. Revelation 6 and uh, 16 through 17. This is, of course, the first half dealing with the sealed judgments. You got the sealed judgments, then the trumpet judgments, and then finally in the bold judgments. This is the first half. How do you get around this? They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of who? The lamb. These people admit it. In the first half, this is the wrath of God that's happening. This is not the wrath of man, the wrath of Satan. And this is for the great, the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? And even though the word wrath isn't found until that sixth seal, they say, well, maybe it doesn't start until then. Uh, no, because you saw the, the judgments of the famine, sword, pestilence, and wild beasts, the first 
four seals? Those are always biblically signs of God's judgment being poured out on people, i.e. his wrath. Check out Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And by the way, the verb there for has come in conjunction with the wrath, it, it's the Greek arrows tense. It's a past tense. So literally what those people are saying, they, they, they're just acknowledging the wrath that's been going on this whole time. They're just now acknowledging it. So you can't escape it. The moment that thing begins, it's all coming from God, from his throne. As we saw before, even uh, in the scripture talks about who's the one who's opening up the seals. Jesus and the lamb and the lamb and the lamb and he and he and he. All seven, it's coming from Jesus. Once that starts, it's all God's wrath and it's wrath all the way through. Revelation eleven eighteen. the nations are angry. You're what? Your wrath, God's wrath has come. Revelation 14, 10, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. Revelation 14, 19, the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered his grapes, threw them into the great winepress of God's what? Wrath. Uh, Revelation 15, what? I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues. Last because with them, God's wrath is completed. Revelation 15, 7, then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Revelation 16, 1, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Revelation 16, 19, the great city split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. I don't know how you get around this, folks. The Bible's very clear. Once the seven-year tribulation starts from beginning to end, the entire seven years, listen, is a time of what? God's wrath. And yet the post-tribbers would say, you and I are not just in that time frame. We're there for the whole seven years. How can you say that when the Bible says what? We are saved from, not appointed unto, we are rescued from God's wrath. Okay? And by the way, they say, well, that's just some weird, weird concept you guys are teaching that, you know, God would, you know, have some... Christians, you know, not go through the wrath and what? No, think about this. Ever since Acts chapter 2, when the birth of the church started nearly 2,000 years ago, last time I checked, did you know that every one of those Christians who've already died, did you know that they, uh, they escaped the wrath of the seven-year tribulation? Right? So what are you acting like? Oh, this is some weird foreign concept. <laughs> it's been happening for a long time. And it's going to happen again. This time with those who, what the scriptures say? Those who are still alive and remain. You get taken out before that happens, right? So it's not some foreign, weird, freaky uh, concept. So again, here's my point. I don't just disagree, but the preacher position is the only one that agrees. We're just taking a look at the first of four false positions on the rapture, Lord willing. But the preacher is the only one that agrees that guess what? If we leave prior to the seven-year tribulation, that means what? We ain't going under what? God's wrath, and that agrees with the rest of Scripture. And isn't that where you're supposed to derive your beliefs from? The Scripture. That's why I reject it. But that's just the first problem. The second one is they say that the tribulation saints will be protected during that time. As you guys can see, that's apparently all you got to do when you're in the fury of God's wrath. What you do is like, Pastor Bobby's going to hide behind that tree right there, and he's just going to get some snacks and some biscuits, whatever else, try to find some water marshmallows, you might as well make the most of it. That's a good idea. And, and he'll be protected. That's actually what they say. Not only are we going to be in there for the whole seven years, but when you're in there, no need to worry because God's going to protect you. Excuse me? That's not what you see in the scripture. The people who turn to God during that time, first of all, is not the church, as we'll see in a second, and we saw before, okay? But these people are not being protected. They're being slaughtered. It's like, what Bible are you reading, right? 
And, and that's what they do. Rather than admit defeat, post-tribbers try to dance around this contradiction that they've created that the Bible says we're not appointed unto wrath, but then you say we're going to be in there for seven years of God's wrath. But the, 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 they dance around it and they say, well, see, here's how we get around that conundrum. No, it's called a contradiction of false teaching, but whatever. Here's how we get around that. Um, God's wrath will only be poured out on the unbelievers. And what he'll do is he'll, he'll, he'll protect those, the church that's in there. Well, first of all, we just saw you can't be in there, but whatever. Let's play that game. Is that what we see? No, right? And, and here's what they do. They take the word saint, speaking of people in the seven-year tribulation, and they say, well, see, that's the church, right? But no, that's called the tribulation saints. Right, but let's take a look at some of the verses they quote. They say, here it is. Here's proof that the church is going to be in a seven-year tribulation, right? But don't worry, God's going to protect you. Here's what they say, Revelation 13, 7. He was given power to make war against the who? The saints and to conquer them. Uh-oh. Revelation 13, 10. If anyone is to go into captivity, in captivity, he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword, he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the Who? The saints, oh man, of Revelation 17, 6. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. It's the church right there. We're in the seven-year tribulation. Ah, no. How many times have we got to go through this? What's the three most important words in real estate? Location, location, location. What's the three most important words in proper biblical interpretation? Context, context, context. Hello, right? Just because you see a word doesn't automatically mean it's one thing. The context derives meaning. Let me give you the classic example. I know that you guys are out there. Please try not to vote, but you're going to like, man, Pastor Billy, that's a cool jacket. That wasn't funny. Why are you laughing? Right? So, or you might be going out there like, well, Pastor Bobby, you're just kind of staring at Pastor. What, what, your attitude towards him is kind of cool. Or you go like, hey, man, praise God, two more weeks. It's finally going to get cool again in Las Vegas, right? Now, here's my point. That's the exact same word spelled the exact same way, but had three totally different meanings. Because you're guilty of escapism. and you don't, no, no, it's normal interpretation rules. Just because you see the word doesn't mean it's one thing. What determined the meaning of the word cool there? Context in which it's used in. Same thing when it comes to saints. Just because you see the word saint doesn't mean it's talking about you and I, the church aid saint. In fact, we did the study before, uh, but by way of recap uh, to explain why this is wrong from the post-tribber, these saints aren't the church aid saint. Actually, the Bible, if you do the study, which I highly recommend, by the way, uh, you're going to see there's four different saints mentioned in the scripture. The Bible talks about an Old Testament saint. So logically, biblically, is that what's referred to in those passages? It can't be because that was speaking of the past and that's a future event. The Bible also talks about millennial saints, saints in the millennium. Is that what that passage is? It can't be because that's in the seven-year tribulation. The millennium doesn't fall until afterwards. Now, is it the New Testament age, you and I, the church age saint? No, it can't be. Because we just saw one biblical proof that we are not appointed unto God's wrath. The seven-year tribulation is seven years nonstop of God's wrath, so we can't be there, so that can't be us. So who is it? It only leaves the fourth option, which is who that is. Not the church, the tribulation saints. And those are the people that get saved after the rapture, okay, in the seven-year tribulation, okay? And the lesson is this. Why did you wait to then, right? Why didn't you get saved now when you had an opportunity and you could have avoided that? Praise God you got saved, but now... Not only is that not the saint as the church, as the poster would say, but they would say, remember what? But you're going to be protected. These people ain't being protected. They're being slaughtered like flies. They're getting their heads chopped off. What Bible are you reading? There's no protection going on there. Let's take a look at those passages. Revelation 6, 9 through 10. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls, those who had been what? 
Slain, remember the Greek word there? Sfadso, it's literally like just butchering, slaying up, just carving up an animal. It's very, very macabre scene there. Because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained, they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Revelation 24, and I saw the souls of those who've been what? Beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. That, that's who we're talking about here, folks. That's not us, the church. It's the tribulation saints. And last time I checked, um, um, I don't know, maybe I'm just being too judgmental. or uh, I, I'm just kind of thinking that getting your head chopped off is not a good way to get protected. Anybody else? Amen. Slaughtered, sliced, and filleted like an animal. That's, huh? Wouldn't that be great? That, you know, what, uh, we, got, we, we, we honor the military. Here, and our police men and women, right? And and in fact, even on their on the on the police cars, you know, for, to, their servants to protect to serve, right? And so, wouldn't that be a great service? I mean, it'll be totally consistent with the post trip position. If we go to a police officer in our time of need, help, help, I need protection. All right, let me chop your head off. <laughs> it sounds goofy, but that's what they're saying. First of all, we are not the saints that are mentioned there. It can't be. But even if you want to say, but say, but don't worry, you'll be protected. There is no protection. What Bible are you reading? But that's just, again, the beginning. The third problem is they replace Israel with the church, right? And not only do they are guilty of taking a word out of context, we just saw saints, right? Uh, But now they take another word out of context, the word elect, right? And the Bible does refer to, in some instances, in the New Testament, elect referring to the church. But that doesn't mean all of them. Right? Uh, in fact, that's what we see. And what they do is, is, is what they do is they, they, they take this passage in Matthew 24, 22, and I'm not joking. This is the one that z- typically they'll go, oh, yeah, if you didn't fall for the saint thing, this is it. And this is their words. This is irrefutable proof that the church is going to be in the seven year tribulation. And here's what they quote, right? Matthew 24, 22. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the who? The elect, those days will be shortened. Oh, no. First of the saints, now it's elect. It's the church. The church is going to be in the seven-year tribulation. We're doomed. Well, that's what the post-tribber would say. But once again, if anything, they're consistent with their false teaching and their bad methodology interpreting the Bible. They're taking it out of context. Not just the word saint is not referring to the church, but this word elect is not referring to the church at all. They got the right time frame. The passage of Matthew 24 is talking about the seven-year tribulation, but the elect they're talking about is not the church. It's the elect called Israel. God is not done with Israel, right? And we certainly didn't replace Israel. We'll get to that in a second. But see, you're just coming up with that. You're just dancing around that word elect. And we know that's the church. You just just don't want to face the persecute. No, no. Context, context, context. The Bible tells us who this elect is, and I'm telling you, it's not the church, okay? Uh, Matthew 24 is dealing with the seven-year tribulation, but he's talking to the Jewish people. Now, we know that because Jesus starts out Matthew 24 by what? He speaks about the Jewish temple that's going to be destroyed, okay? He's answering the Jewish disciples. The church was not even in existence yet. Did you realize that? When Matthew 24 was written, there was not an Acts chapter 2 yet. The Bible says the church was a mystery, so the disciples didn't even know about the church, right? So he's talking about this rebuilt Jew, uh, the Jewish temple that's going to be destroyed, and it was the Romans. Then he starts, he switches gears, and he talks about this rebuilt Jewish temple that the Antichrist is going to do halfway into the 70th week of Daniel's 70th week prophecy, the seven-year tribulation, right? 
And he's referring to that prophecy from Daniel, right? Now, here's the point. The Jewish temple being destroyed or rebuilt has no significance to you and I as the church. Our focus is simply that we have now become the temple of God. I didn't say that. God did. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16. But don't you know that you, church, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? So the church is only concerned with being God's temple, not a, a, a destroyed or rebuilt Jewish temple. But can I tell you something? A rebuilt Jewish temple is huge for the, Christ, uh, the Jewish people today. In fact, they're working on it right now as we speak. They're ready to go. They're just waiting for somebody to cut a deal to start building that thing. They got the articles, the priesthood, everything's ready to go. I wonder who that guy is, right? But that's your first clue. Furthermore, Jesus in Matthew 24, he gives this command to the audience. Who's the elect? It ain't the church. He says this, Matthew 24, 16, then let those who are in where? Judea flee to the mountains. Now, if this was the church, the church is all over the planet. You would think that if he's talking to the church, uh, number one, you'd think he would use the word church, right? Because what did we see before? Revelation, when God wants to refer to the church, what's he use? Church. That's right, Pastor Bobby, the word church. In fact, he uses it 19 times in the first three chapters. But then when the church is gone and you're dealing with Revelation 6 all the way to 18, the events of the seven-year tribulation, how many times does God use the word church? Zero. Why? Because we're not there. So you would think if he's referring to the church in this passage... He's not afraid of using it. Inspired of the Holy Spirit. Why doesn't he use the word church? Because it's not the church. But again, even if this was the church, it says where? To Judea. Where's Judea? Israel. So number one, if this was the church and we're all over the globe, why didn't he say, you know, hey, for those of you who are in New York City or LA or Sydney or Moscow or Peking, right? Judea. That's the Jewish people. That's where the Jewish people live. That's where Jerusalem is. And then he says there, not only uh, flee, uh, flee to the mountains, right? So again, uh, can all the church uh, fit in that area that he's talking about fleeing? Uh, first of all, Judea, no, number one. Do all Christians live in Judea? No, we're all of the world. But even the mountains, most biblical scholars would say, the area he's saying to flee from, Judea, to the mountains is the mountains that lead to Petra. So can all the church uh, fit in Petra? No, but can a Jewish remnant? that God's going to sovereignly protect with the archangel Michael fit in that area? Yes, right? And then it goes on even more. He says, who's this elect he's talking about? Context, context, context. He says, these people are keeping the Sabbath day, right? That's what we see, Matthew 24, 20. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, okay? And then he says this next text, he says this, Matthew 24, pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the what? Sabbath. So if this is the church, surely that's what we're doing. We're worshiping on the Saturday Sabbath. That's when we worship. No, it's not, right? We worship on Sunday in honor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that happened on Sunday, the first day of the week. And the Bible says, uh, we don't let anybody judge you and say, you've got to worship on the Sabbath because we have the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. That was the shadow. We got the reality. And that's why Paul says this about the Saturday Sabbath, Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or what? Sabbath day, okay? Why not? Well, he goes on and says, because these are what? A shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is found in who? Jesus Christ. Technically, you and I as Christians can worship any day of the week, right? In fact, we really should worship. We don't just worship on Sundays one hour a week. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 12 says what? This is your logical Lagikos in the Greek, logical response to God's grace and mercy, right? Romans chapter three, there is no one righteous, no one, one. We are doomed going straight to hell. Praise God for his grace and mercy. Therefore, the logical conclusion is give thanks. Are you thankful? Guess what? Then what? This is your 
logical response. To live your life as a living sacrifice. That means you're living for Jesus every day, right? So really, technically, we should worship Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week. However, in honor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we worship on Sundays. And that's exactly what we see the pattern of the early church. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, we, the church, what? Came together to break bread, right? So here's the point. How could Jesus be referring to the church in Matthew 24 when he says these people need to pray that their flight doesn't take place on the Sabbath when we don't worship on the Sabbath? Could it be he's referring to the Jewish people again as the elect here because the Jewish people still to this day worship on Sabbath? And they're the ones who are going to be in the seven-year tribulation, which is the time frame. Exactly, right? So again, how could these events of Matthew 24, let alone the word elect, refer to the church when it's all pointing signs to Israel? The answer is it can't, which means you need to give it up, stop it, okay, come back to the scripture, agree with what the scripture says, and stop trying to do that. You're guilty of ignoring the context. One guy says this, the reason why some are teaching the church will be present in the seven-year tribulation is the failure to distinguish between God's plan and his plan for the church, especially when it comes to the prophecy in Matthew 24. In this passage, Christ is on the Temple Mount explaining to the Jewish disciples the events that will occur in Israel and when Jesus comes back, Uh, as their Jewish Messiah. In fact, the disciples questioned Jesus that he was answering was not the rapture with the church that they had no knowledge of. It was about the long-promised kingdom, the millennial kingdom. Furthermore, it's easy to forget that before the crucifixion of our Lord and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, there was no such thing as the Christian church, right? In fact, uh, if you would have told one of the disciples during the week before Christ's crucifixion that someday, listen, an organization based on Christ's teaching called the church would have 99% of its members would be uncircumcised Gentiles who would neither follow the Jewish law nor the temple sacrifices, they would have been uh, falling off their chair in shock and disbelief. Okay, and that's why the interpretation of Matthew 24 and this conversation between Jesus Christ and his Jewish disciples at that time has nothing to do with the church. Okay, and therefore, since Christ doesn't mention the church to his disciples in this conversation, the plain interpretation, listen, of this passage is that Israel is the primary focus of this prophecy and Matthew 24, which means Israel is not the elect. And that's not dancing around the scripture. Just like just because you see the word saint does not mean it's referring to the church. It could be, but what determines the meaning? Context. Just because you see the word elect does not mean it's referring to the church. It could be, but what determines the meaning? Context. And this context is screaming out Jewish people, Jewish people, Jewish people, Jewish people, which we saw was one of the reasons why there's a seven-year tribulation. God's using the seven-year tribulation to basically discipline Israel and lead them to their one and only Messiah who they've currently rejected they wake up in the seven-year tribulation. That's one of the purposes. That's what he's talking about there uh, in this passage, okay? Now, one last thing on that. Really think about their position. They want to say that the church is going, the post tribulation they want to say that the church is going through the whole seven-year tribulation. And they want to say that Matthew 24 is not talking about Israel. He's talking about the church. Now, think about that. That's replacement theology, If you're not familiar with replacement theology, that's the false teaching that's out there, unfortunately, popular in even so-called churches today, where they say the church has replaced Israel, that God's done with Israel, that that the church or the Israel has been, uh, since they rejected Christ, then God's done with them. 
And they basically say that the church is the new spiritual Israel, the new spiritual Jerusalem, and that now all the promises that were applied to the Jewish people apply to us, and, and that's called replacement theology. They replace the focus from Israel onto the church. And that's a heresy of a high order. God's not done with the Jewish people. We've dealt with that so many different times. But here's my point. Post-tribbers are actually taking replacement theology and applying it to eschatology. Why? Because they're taking the focus of the seven-year tribulation, which is supposed to biblically be Israel, and they've replaced it with who? The church. What's that? That's replacement theology. Another sign that what you're teaching, you need to reject because it doesn't line up with the scripture. Okay, but let me give you one more. The fourth problem with the post-trib position is it ruins the whole purpose of the rapture, right? The rapture, I kind of, maybe it's just me, but I'm, I'm kind of thinking it's called the blessed hope for a reason, right? But uh, you might as well just take that hope and blow it up because uh, last time I checked, being in the seven-year tribulation doesn't instill hope with me. I mean, is that what you guys do? Is that, is that your methodology, right? You're, you're having trials and troubles, general issues here today. This is not heaven. We know that we're going to be persecuted and we're starting to see that's starting to even peak up in our lifetime. And so I, what you do is you, you go to the post-tribber and you go, oh, I, I feel so encouraged right now. I, I'm dealing with some persecution right now. Even the United States of America is a, is a New Testament Christian. And, and the way I'm going to make it through this day and how many days I got left is, is I, I look forward to storing up survival gear and I got to make it seven years through this horrible time of God's fury being poured on the planet. Asteroids are slamming into the earth and, and, and hiding behind that tree behind Pastor Bobby in case he gets burned up. And then maybe I can, I can keep somehow going there. And then somehow if I survive, I got to avoid the Antichrist. And then, and then I, I just, you know, <laughs> hopefully I don't get my head chopped off. And so I'll make it to the very end without dying and being slayed alive. I feel so encouraged, aren't you guys? Let's close in prayer. That's an encouraging word. The whole position destroys the blessed hope. Encour- There's nothing encouraging about that. It's not just, oh, you, you just don't want to suffer. No, it's not true. And it's exactly the opposite of what God says to do. We are to encourage one another with the truth of the rapture. Their position makes it a joke and meaningless. Right? One guy puts it this way. He says, the post-trib position maintains the rapture, happens in conjunction with the second coming. Right, believers, here, here's what you look forward to. We'll be caught up to meet the Lord Jesus in the air as He's coming from heaven at the second coming to judge the world. And you just literally go, "That's it." But this raises the important question that often gets overlooked in this discussion. Listen, if God has miraculously preserved the church, as they say, which is not true, but if they say during the entire seven-year tribulation, then why do we even have a rapture in the first place? Right? I mean, it's inconsequential. It, it, why bother? You go through the whole thing, and then you go straight up, and you come straight right back down. The Lord will not be delivering his bride from anything because you've already been through everything, right? There's no purpose in it. You might as well change the title of the rapture from the blessed hope to the big blessed nothing or the no big deal promise or the gigantic quick elevator ride. Woo! Jesus can do better than that. And he does. If Christ does come back before the seven-year tribulation, which is what the scripture teaches, then guess what? His coming is filled with purpose, that of encouragement. He will rescue us from that. And you know what? That, instead of buy survival gear, store up gold, silver, that's right. 
buy that Jeep. Get that bug out shelter going. Get that piece of property. You can hide out and hide even better than Pastor Bobby. That's right. Somehow survive with your, not getting your head chopped. The news of the rapture, that encourages me. Aren't you glad to know that what we're dealing with right now, even if it gets worse, at least we'll never be a part of that. Therefore, Scripture says, encourage one another. Build each other up as you're doing. It's encouraging to know I'm not going to be here. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture tells us to do. Only the pre-tribusition can provide that comfort. Oh, and again, by the way, uh, the scripture mentions that more than once because the rapture is meant to encourage, right? First uh, Thessalonians 14, therefore what? Encourage each other with these words. What words? The truth of the rapture, right? First Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you were doing. But you can't do that if you're post-tribber. Right? You put yourself in the seven-year tribulation, let alone the whole full seven years of God's pure, of fury. That, that's not encouraging. Listen, it's the exact polar opposite. It's discouraging. Think of the message they have. Here's their hope. Hey, you think you got it bad now with all the stuff that's going on in your government and the current administration, persecution heating up here in America? You ain't seen nothing. Wait till you see the Antichrist and the false prophet. You're going to have to deal with the market beast. You're going to have to have all these torments and find asteroids, signs, and then the head chopped off. Don't you feel better already? Do you get it? It's not just wrong. It's the exact opposite. There's nothing encouraging about there. And that's not just post-trib. Even a nanosecond of the seven-year tribulation is not encouraging. Jesus said it's the worst time in the history of mankind. Why? Because it's seven years of God's wrath being poured out nonstop. Not seven minutes, not seven days, not seven months, not one year, not three years, not five years, seven years nonstop and you ain't getting out. Except if you get saved today right now, then you can leave at the rapture. Encourage one another with these words, okay? One guy puts it this way. People who disbelieve the pre-tribusition, unfortunately, are on the rise, and they say that Christ's call to believers uh, just isn't going to happen before Christians suffer at least part of the terrors of that beastly era. Post-tribus said basically the whole part. They further accuse us of believing in a pre-trib rapture Uh, that we're just living in a fantasy world. And they go on to say that I and all of you should begin by prepping with food and water and gold and silver. Find a good bunker in which to hunker down during these upcoming days. That is their focus. That's their encouraging word. And that's why I seldom hear from these people who put the church, including the post-tribus in the seven-year tribulation, the admonition to be out there witnessing with all your might the gospel of Jesus Christ because there's still time for people to escape it. That's what the pre-trib position does. It motivates you. Because today could be that last day. Right? Coincidentally, he says, or perhaps not, these same people, the post-tribbers, all the ones that put the church in there, on TV, their so-called ministries, openly not only disdain the thought of a pre-trib rapture, but they just happen to be the same ones who are offering for sale these things for survival. Maybe that's why you don't want to give it up. It affects the bottom line. The packaged food items invariably are not only uh, proclaimed to have good shelf lives, but listen, three decades or longer. So apparently, I suppose to these guys, if we survive the seven-year tribulation and hide behind Pastor Bobby behind that tree there, uh, then we will even be able to partake of these supplies well into the millennium. Encourage one another with these words. I thought about that. I shared that with the first service. Excuse me. So here I am stuck seven years of eating instant mashed potatoes 
in 80-pound bags. I'm thinking after seven years, the last thing I ever want to eat again is instant potatoes. But this is, this is crazy. It's all based on the faulty premise that the rapture, listen, here's, what the, here's their message. It's not the rapture that's imminent. It's the seven-year tribulation that's imminent, which means they're encouraging you not to look for Jesus Christ, but the Antichrist. But that's not what the scripture says. The point is this. The Bible says comfort. And my question, he says, is where's the comfort? I mean, what comfort is there in the argument that Christians will be going through the seven-year tribulation? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, for those of us who remain, comfort ourselves, edify with one another, as also ye do, because we're leaving. Do you get it? We are to comfort ourselves with the truth of the rapture, not wring our hands looking for these things that are going to destroy us, try to avoid dying and get your head chopped off, or looking for the Antichrist. We are to look for our blessed hope. That's why these positions are wrong. There is no comfort to be had in anticipating going through God's wrath for seven years nonstop, avoiding martyrdom or beheading. There is no comfort in looking for the worst dictator in the planet's history who's going to hunt us down and chop off our heads. That's common sense. And we don't just disagree with it. Because we're just denying reality. And you're a bunch of wimps. We're the ultimate survivors. No, we disagree because you disagree with the scripture. And we base our beliefs as Christians on the scripture. You're the one who needs to align your belief with the word of God. Unless, of course, you have a motive for not submitting to the scripture. And what's Jesus say? You can't serve both God and and money. Who's your God? Bingo. Fifth problem is that they confuse the rapture with God's judgment, but we are out of time. We're going to have to deal with that next time. But as always, as we close, are you ready for the rapture? And as a Christian, the right answer is? Yes. Yes, absolutely. We say we're ready, but what's the proof? It's how you live. It's how you behave. Because when you know that the rapture is imminent, you're not lazy. You're living for Jesus. You're loving him. He's going to come back. Today could be that day. He's going to find you doing something. How's your walk with Jesus Christ? Did you know he's going to find you doing something? Thank you, God, for saving me from eternal damnation and hell. Thank you for saving me for seven years of your wrapping part on this planet, uh, of hell on earth. Thank you, thank you. And then you're off in the world. You never spend time with God. That's how you want him to find you. He's going to find you doing something. Praise God, we're saved not by our works, amen. But he's going to find you. Is that how you want him to find you? Or as a faithful bride, loving him, serving him, growing up in him, and loving people enough to say, hey, man, while there's still time, today could be that last day, the rapture is imminent, get saved. That's how I want to find me. So don't just say you're ready. It'll show with your life. Or if you're not ready, if you're not saved, and you think, oh, this wrath of God, wrath of doom and gloom, you're just trying to scare me. No, listen, if you don't think the wrath of God is a big deal, You better listen to what this guy says. We'll close in prayer after this. Saving faith is the desperate Father, are you doing what he says? Seek 
give us a minor shift or two with regard to a few of our ethical and moral and religious values. The cross radically disrupts the very center and citadel of your life from self to Christ. And if the cross has not done that, you're not a Christian! My friend, face it! Young or old, you're not a Christian! Until the cross has radically disrupted the very center and citadel of your life and brought you from a life of commitment to serve self, whether it's religious self, moral self, proud self, covetous self, lustful self, prideful self, unforgiving self, lazy self. It doesn't matter what are the focal points of the reign of your self. If you've gone to the cross in union with Christ, it's been shattered. I want you in that day, when you stand with me before the judge of the world, to have him say, come you blessed. Come you blessed. I don't want to look at you standing there saying, Lord, 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 I named you in earth. I named you before the elders. I named you before the church. I named you in prayer meeting. I named you in witness. And Lord, now, Lord, Lord, did I not this? Did I not that? I don't want to hear him say, Depart from me. I never knew you. You worker of anything. You never were made a doer of the will of God. You learned enough, and you learned what to say properly enough to be accepted for what you professed yourself to be on earth. But now the day of judgment has come, and the truth is now to be known. And what's that truth? You profess to belong to Christ. 
but you really didn't. You hear me say it all the time. You can fool me because I don't know your heart, but you'll never fool God. And he warned us in the scripture there's going to be many, not a few, many is the word he uses, who are going to act surprised. What in the world am I doing in hell? I went to church services. I tried to be a good person. In that passage, notice what the people were appealing to. Religious works. They didn't say, God, what am I doing in hell? How did I end up under your wrath? I I trusted solely in the work of Jesus Christ, his grace and mercy on the cross. I trusted in his works, not my own. They didn't say that. You could hear it today. Oh, I just, you know, believed in God. I try not to be a bad person. I got water dunked on me at one point. I became a member of so-and-so. That doesn't save you. Has there come a point in time when you've cast yourself, all of yourself, at the foot of the cross of Christ and said, God, I can't save myself. There is no one, right? There's no good in myself. I'm disqualified for heaven. I can't get there no matter what I try to do. But I heard of your love. God so demonstrates his love for us that while we were still what? Sinners. What sinners? Living for self. Christ died for us. That's the only way you escape it. If you haven't done that, you're not saved. I don't care how long you've been coming here. If you've never truly surrendered yourself to Christ, and what's the false gospel that's being taught in churches today? That Jesus is just like a life enhancement, a good luck charm. Just say this little prayer thing and you're good to go. And you could go live the way... No. You know why he's not just called your Savior? He's called your Lord, kurios in the Greek. Lord means master. It's not about self anymore. You want to be his disciple? You must deny yourself. Pick up your cross, come follow him. And the Greek continues so as to make it a habit of life. When you come to Jesus, not saying you're perfect, and thank God that it's not of works, and thank you that when you come to him, he'll take you just as you are. But the moment you get truly saved, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you become his temple, and you know what the Holy Spirit does? He begins to change you from the inside out. And you know one of the sure signs that you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit? You don't live for yourself. I didn't say live perfectly, because none of us can. But you know what? He also drives you to the scripture, so you can become a disciple. You want to pray to God. You want to tell other people what happened to you. It's a natural thing. We're not saved by those works, but what happens is you cannot be the same person when you're truly born again because you're indwelt with the Spirit of God. That's what Paul says, Romans chapter 8. What? If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. How far can you push it? What are you really trusting in? Are you ready for the rapture? Because if it's not that and that alone, you're not going. And I beg you, I implore you, please turn to Jesus today. Receive his love and grace and forgiveness so that you will hear on that day, not depart from me, but come, you who are blessed. Amen. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? 
In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying, okay? How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand, okay? Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step to admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven. I need a savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against him and disqualified us that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? 
It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know, it's actually on historical record, that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so, even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us, this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave, and the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.